You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are in our 12th week. I know this is a long series for Thrive. We usually do four to six weeks in length, you know, move on to a topic. But we're this fall with um, COVID-19 with us coming back into in-person worship with masks on, with all these limitations, we thought this was a good year to just get back to the basics. And so we are doing a series on, of all books, the book of Romans, uh, 13 weeks. So next Sunday is the last week in our series. And um, how God justifies us, and that's called justified, and how God then mends us, mends our lives, our hearts, our world. And um, I'm excited about today's message as we are in Romans 13. So after this series, what are we going to do next? We're calling it Ugly Christmas. <laughs> okay, and you might say this is going to be an ugly Christmas, and it could well be in the sense of what we're used to having. But think about the first Christmas, you know, a manger, um, not a one, it wasn't pine scented, you know, Christmas candle, cinnamon, all that, and spices. No, it was kind of manure scented, probably. And it was kind of an ugly time. And actually, all the prophecies uh, starting in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah were spoken during very ugly times. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, all these wonderful prophecies we think of, for unto us a child is born, all those types of things, were not spoken in an easy time, not in a wonderful time, not in the peak time, but in a really bad time. And so I think it's going to be a good contrast this year with what we're going through to start this series on, I think it's November 29th, if I'm right, two weeks from today, okay? Going to be fun, okay? So, Justified, version 12. We're actually... um, when we started this series uh, 12 weeks ago, we, re- we started at the end of the letter of Romans to find out where was Paul headed with all of this stuff. And what we found out back then is that Roman society was dealing with two huge issues, two huge issues that I think we do too, and they were the issues of power and privilege and how that caused such divisions in those days between men and women between slave and free, between Gentile and Jew, and between all sorts of ethnicities as well. And how the gospel of justification, this wonderful word that we are justified by God's grace through Jesus Christ, mends our hearts, mends our relationships, and will mend our world, and how God has brought that about. So today what we're discovering is in Romans chapter 13 how Paul's telling those Christians in Rome in these small five to eight house churches, how do they live in the real world? And the real world of their day (laughs) was a world under Nero, the emperor. A powerful, pervasive, and unscrupulous regime that was ruining or dominating all sorts of lives. And so We're going to look at Romans chapter 13. We could read the whole chapter. It starts out about uh, the government in those days. But I think the last verses, 11 through 14 of chapter 13, will give us a good summary of all that Paul is saying. So we're reading in Romans 13, 11 through 14. 
Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I think you might realize this. Okay? The Roman Empire was never wonderfully benevolent or tolerant for Christians or for Jews or for any religious or ethnic minority. In fact, for instance, in 49 AD, Claudius, the reigning emperor, uh, banished and expelled the Jews from Rome itself. And we know about this as well in the book of Acts because Priscilla and Aquila left Rome at that time. They met Paul in Corinth. That's where they met. But it got worse. It got worse than just having Jews banished from Rome. In 64 AD, it was Nero who fiddled while Rome burned. Have you heard that line before? He blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. This little minority, uh, most historians believe that he set the fire himself because he wanted to renovate the city. But he blamed the Christians. He rounded them up. He had them killed. Some were torn apart by dogs. Some were burned alive as human torches on poles. Isn't that wonderful? Dip them in wax, light it on fire, let them go. And over the next hundred years or so, Christians were sporadically persecuted in Rome. There was no great... Um, dominant government that was persecuting all people until the third century. That's when the emperors initiated intensive persecutions. But Paul is dealing with this. Nero is on the throne when he is writing the book of Romans. He knows the history. He knows what's going on. The Roman government is in the background. And the temptation, he believes, for the Christians in Rome was a temptation that the Jews faced in the time of Jesus as well, and that all faced, and it was either you would revolt or assimilate. You know? Paul says neither. Don't revolt. Don't assimilate. The zealots... I don't know if you've heard about them. You might have heard about one historical incident for them. But the zealots were ones of the little short sword, and they revolted against the Roman occupation in Palestine. But boy, did they pay a high price, because by 70 AD, Jerusalem is flattened, the temple is burned down to the ground, and Pompey and his army um, lay siege to the temple uh, not just to the temple, to the uh, fortress at Masada on the high mountain and killed the rest of these zealots. That's what revolt against Rome is like. Now, there were Herodians in those days too. Herodians followed Herod. And what they decided to do was just say, when in Rome, do as the Romans. And they assimilated right into Roman society. And Paul said, do not do that either. You are distinct. You are different. You aren't supposed to fall in line. Don't do as the Romans and don't fight power with power. Now, this might shock you. And I might not be popular about saying this, but I think this is the biblical message. You might question it. You might say, wait a minute, that's not 
but I'm going to say it just bluntly. There has never been a government in this world that is aligned with God's kingdom, period. None, not one. Governments rule by law. The Christian church runs by the gospel. They use power. We live by love and service, empowering others. The values that are inherent in any government toward power and privilege, and every one of them deals with it, fight against the way that Jesus has called his followers to live as servants. And even when Israel itself had kings on their throne and they were in charge of their own land. I don't know if you realize this. In the Old Testament, in the book of Samuel, Samuel is so ticked off that they don't want him to run things. And he goes to God and God says, hey, they want a king like the rest of the nations. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me as their king. God was not happy with the kings. And even the best of them, David and Solomon, were never fully aligned with what God wanted. They did all sorts of things. They were fallible. They were falling as well. Oh, yeah, there are better governments and there are worse governments in this world. And there are cultures that are more aligned with what Jesus would have us or give us freedom to do it. And there are others that are against it. But there has never been and never will be a Christian nation where everything in that nation is aligned with the kingdom of God. And the government and the kingdom of God are synonymous. Never. There are nations with many Christians, but there are not Christian nations. And our goal is not to make a Christian nation. Our goal is to make disciples of every nation. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Romans 13 understands that Christians are now living collectively in Rome under a repressive regime of power and corruption. Now, how do we live? And what do we look forward to? And how do we respond? And so, two responses today that we're looking at in this text, okay? The first is this, wake up to the day. And the second is, dress for the occasion. That's what Paul says in Romans 13 here. So, first of all, wake up to the day. And Paul writes this, besides this, you know that the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So what is Paul talking about here? He's using a metaphor, day and night, light and dark, sleeping and wakefulness, uh, to say where we find ourselves right now in history. You see, the biblical understanding of time is that it doesn't stand still, that it doesn't just keep going around in circles, but that it is headed somewhere. In fact, not just headed in a direction, but that the future has come back right into the present. The future of the kingdom of God has come into the, into the re, real world. The day has already dawned in Jesus Christ, and he is our future, and he has redirected the entire history of the world to the future that God has for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fully realized kingdom of God. And so that's why someone like Scott McKnight writing about Romans 13 says, redemption in the New Testament is neither now nor the future. It is both now and the future. 
We're in a place and time, the overlap of the ages, in the last days, as the Bible says. Ever since the coming of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost, we are, we are still in the last days 2,000 years later, the day that any moment we have to be ready for the day. Because we have been justified, the book of Romans would say, we will be glorified so much so that in Romans 8, when we looked at that, it was in the past tense. It was as if it already had happened. Paul says, don't look to the past. See the day that is coming. Look to the future that is guaranteed and certain and live to that day. The start of a whole new humanity in Jesus Christ, a whole new way to live. Wake up for that day. Now, that is much different, by the way, a much different emphasis than when you hear people say, hey, I'm just living for today. Have you heard people say that? Live for today, carpe diem. Anybody ever hear that? Seize the day. Make the most of every opportunity you have today. Just live for the moment. I'm living in today because why? Most people, when they say that, they don't know what tomorrow will bring. Well, we don't either, except we do know who is our future in Jesus. They say, hey, it's unpredictable. I have no idea what's going to happen, so eat dessert first today, because who knows what tomorrow will bring. And so everybody's trying to live for the moment, and when they do, guess what they're living for? Themselves, right? we're seeing it all over the place. Everything has to be now. And boy, let me tell you, when you can't have it now, and especially in a time like this year with COVID and all the restrictions that we have put in place, people get really ticked off and angry about it. And we've seen incidences where someone just being asked to walk into a store with a mask on yells and screams at the people that are working in that store because you are getting in the way of what I can have today. But Christians don't live for today. We live for the day, the day that is coming. Here's a reality for all of us. The way you understand your future will dictate your values and your decisions in the present. The way that you understand your future will dictate how you are going to live in the present. If you believe you have no future at all, or you don't know the future, or it's unpredictable, or who knows, it's up for grabs, then you're going to live like that and live for today. But when you know the future is secure in Jesus Christ, that God has a future, do you realize, here's the truth, the most beautiful days of your life are ahead of you. Are ahead of you. Not behind you. And they're not today. They're ahead of you, every one of us, the most beautiful days. Some of us had some glorious days. I can remember the birth of both of my children were wonderful days. Even a more beautiful day will be coming. Okay? Do you understand? That's the message of the gospel. Your most beautiful days are ahead of you. The day of my wedding, that was another beautiful day. And boy, did, uh, did my wife look Gorgeous, right? Gorgeous, stunning. She's going to look more glorious one day than even that. Isn't that amazing? That's the hope that we have, and it's a sure and certain hope. And Paul says the day is almost here. And this is more than a metaphor, 
okay? Because the day of the Lord is one of the big themes that you can read through all the prophets in the Old Testament. The day when God is going to renew the whole earth, when he is going to bring this fallen, broken era to a close and a whole new day opens when the resurrection will appear, when Christ appears in glory, when our bodies will be glorified and everything be transformed and the most beautiful days will begin in the kingdom of God. And Paul says, wake up to that reality, live for that day. And wakefulness, I think, means that you're aware of things that the world is asleep at the switch on right now. You know, they're sleepwalking. You're awake. You know. You're awake to the reality of how this whole thing is going to turn out. You know where it's headed. The world doesn't know. They live more or less in an apocalyptic time. Most of the world is living in a time where they feel like, oh, I, you know, it's either going to be the walking dead or, you know, hunger games or something in the future. They aren't sure what but it ain't going to be great, and you know it is. You have woken up to the reality that the ultimate good is happening because of Jesus Christ. You also know that no power can change it, no person can thwart it, and no nation can delay what God has planned for his people. Wake up to that. You are aware that arrogance is going to fail and lies will be unraveling and every wicked thing is going to fall apart and God's kingdom and God's word and God's truth and love will remain. You know that even when you don't get what you want now, that's okay. You know when you sacrifice now for the sake of others, that's a good thing. That God has more in store for you in your future than you can ever even imagine. You know you won't miss a thing. You won't lose out because the most beautiful and glorious days of your life are ahead of you, not behind you. And you are awake to the reality of that day. So in 2017, I read this this week on Palm Sunday, Nassim Fahim he was a guard at St. Mark's Church in Alexandria, Egypt. It's a Coptic Christian congregation. And he was outside to make sure that those who were coming into the church were safe because Egypt, like a lot of the world, is filled with a lot of turmoil right now. And that day, a suicide bomber came up to him and to the crowd in front of the church, and Nassim blocked him from getting inside Nassim was killed along with about 15 other people, but he saved countless lives that day. So Nassim's widow was interviewed a couple of days after this event with her children by her side. A reporter for Egyptian television was there, and this is what she said. I'm not angry at the one who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you, and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. Believe me, I am proud of him, and I wish I was there by his side. Now, the Egyptian television host, Amir Adib, watched this unfold, this interview, and he was stunned into 10 seconds of silence. 
And that wasn't even 10 seconds that I just gave you. On television, 10 seconds of silence feels like an eternity. And then Adib said, the Copts of Egypt are made of steel. If it were my father, I could never say this. These people have so much forgiveness, but this is their faith and religious conviction. These people are made from a different substance. Yes, they are. Because she wasn't living for today. Nassim wasn't living for today. He was living for the day. He was living for the resurrection. So wake up for the day. And our second point today is dress for the occasion. Paul says in Romans 13, 12, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then he adds in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, Paul here again uses a metaphor about like taking off your pajamas. I assume you wear pajamas, okay? And put on your dress clothes. Take off your rags and put on your riches. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has for you. Now, Paul speaks this way in numerous places in the New Testament about putting off the old and putting on the new, of casting aside all these things that don't matter, that fit with the old age, with the night, and bringing in the new that fits with your future, that's who you are now in Jesus Christ. For instance, in the book of Colossians, he says in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know, all these qualities in this passage, um, I've used this passage, by the way, for a number of, uh, of weddings, um, it's a great passage for that. But it's not just a checklist of different things like check, check, okay, I've got compassion, boom, 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 as if like you are a Boy Scout trying to get a merit badge for this, for that, for this. Do you realize all of these things that are in a passage like this are different facets and aspects of the character of who Jesus Christ already is and what he gives you freely? Um, now, I was the older brother in my household, and that was kind of a nice thing. Um, some of you know what this is like, right? Because my brother Paul, two years younger than me, got my hand-me-downs. Anybody ever got hand-me-downs from other people in the family? Did any of you like them? Eh, not usually, you know. Not at all, because I don't want to wear... This is your chance, though. You've got an older brother, Jesus... And what he's handing on to you is everything that he has accomplished, everything that he has done, all the loving acts that he ever did, all the heartfelt motivations that he has, everything that is about him. He says, here, these are now yours. I'm handing them on to you. You get to put this on, his demeanor. All the things that he has earned are now rightfully yours. This is what it means for you to be justified, to be clothed with Christ, to be given a different status, the status of Jesus Christ himself. Paul is calling you to receive that gift and put on those hand-me-downs. 
And when you do, you start to live like Christ, see like Christ, care like Christ. And when you do, you see that love and truth come together, integrity and the whole character of compassion. Love and truth. Those were fully realized in Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you know this about love and truth, but um, love actually needs truth. Otherwise, it just become, it needs it for direction. And truth needs love for inspiration. Without truth, love is just sentimentality. But without love, truth is just cruelty. So Paul talks about this list of things, and often, you know, churches can, can get hung up on all the, the desires and terrible things that people have um, in life and want to talk about. And here he does list some of them. We're going to say, hey, what's behind these? Orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. You know, these remind me of something, Martha, that, uh, Marcia, that you said to me. Um, at the beginning of this pandemic, you said... If uh, people are going to get through this pandemic, they're either going to become a hunk, a chunk, or a drunk. <laughs> right? I'm not becoming the hunk. I think I'm working on the chunk. I would like to add one fourth one to it, because I think this list talks about that. Uh, we can become a hunk, a chunk, a drunk, or a skunk. OK? And that's what happens in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the pressures that we have faced, in the midst of all the things that are going on in our society right now. Um, when we think that we're speaking the truth, but we're not doing it in love, or we're speak, uh, thinking that we're doing something in love, but we're just doing it in uh, self-love and not really for another. You know? So, for instance, um, calling it truth, people are stinking up uh, social media spraying all their opinions around, criticizing others, and of course, praising themselves for being right about everything. Now, it might possibly be truth, but if truth is not spoken in love, that's what quarreling and jealousy is really all about, masquerading as something being right. You don't really care about the other people. That's not the way of Christ. And then others who are trying to call it love are using things like sex and other pleasures simply for self-gratification when the primary reality of what God has given, this intimate, wonderful, physical bonding of sex to a covenantal marriage relationship where it can be used for the sake of the other rather than just for self-gratification. When we try to live outside of the truth of what God set up this gift for, we're just doing it for our own pleasure and not for the other. And the reason we don't follow just simply whatever we want to do and live for the day, the, today is not simply because that's wrong and that's terrible, because we see in the light of the day, it's absolutely pointless. It's worthless. It's useless. It's wasteful. It's out of touch with the redemption that Jesus has for us. The time is way over to play with those things, to put on those rags. It's time to put on the riches that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Truth and love, they were fully present in Jesus, perfectly together in Jesus. 
You know, when the religious people accused him of being a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, you know, Jesus said, yep, you got it. That's the truth. I love these people. I love sinners. I party with the people who were lost and now have been found. And when he was called on later in his life to compromise his stands and say, hey, should we pay taxes or not? He said to render to Caesar the things that are his, taxes, but not the honor that is only God's. He would not compromise. He could not be bought. He could not be toyed with. He could not be played because truth and love were so together. He's the only human being who's never had a mixed motive in his life who never did anything selfishly, who never did anything for himself, but always for the sake of others, always under the movement of the Holy Spirit in his life, driven by the Spirit for the sake of the Father's glory, always looking for that. And for that, the fact that he was so truthfully loving and lovingly truthful, we killed him. We couldn't stand him. We couldn't do anything with him. We couldn't control him. And so we nailed him to a cross. And there at the cross, we see how truth and love truly are wed together. And there we see the truth of our experience, the truth of our wickedness is seen by that we killed the one innocent person on earth. (laughs) But we see beyond that, that he put himself on the cross for us, that God himself gave his son because how infinitely he loves us more than anything we've ever done. Truth and love. And the truth is God has now opened up this new way of living and this new way of being. He has given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ where truth and love are together. It is the character of Jesus Christ that Paul is saying, clothe ourselves with right now. That you dress for the occasion. You're justified before God. You're given the status of Jesus with the Father. You wear it with honor. And you live into each day. And as you wear these characteristics of Jesus Christ, you start to become those who can mend the brokenhearted in our society, just like Jesus did. You can heal those who are hurting, just like Jesus did. You can reconcile people who are enemies, just like Jesus did. You can bring truth and love to a society fighting against those with power and privilege, just like Jesus did. So... This series has been a good one, I think. We are justified. And this is how God mends our broken hearts, our broken lives, and mends this broken world through us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this day that the day is almost here. It's coming. It's, we are another day closer to the eternity you have for us to that day of resurrection, the most beautiful days of our lives are ahead of us, Lord God. We thank you for that glorious truth. You went through the ugliness of this world, Lord, and the ugliness of the scars that you bore for us and the beating you took for us and the insults upon you just to give us your beauty, and we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. 
We pray that you would help us now in a very ugly time in our nation and world, during a very contentious time of power and privilege, that you would help us to go to this world, not trying to overpower it with anything more than love and service and your grace. Teach us, O Lord, to be courageous, to live for that day, the day before us that you have for us, and not to live just for today. Lord God, in that light, we have many in our congregation who are looking forward to that day, some who are going through some very difficult times right now, and we pray for them. We lift up to you, Andy, as she is in a clinical trial, and she does look that one day, she knows that we'll be there for her, but we pray for this day, Lord, that you give her both peace and protection and healing and that you would make her a miracle for others to see and testify to your goodness and grace, that she can and we can rejoice with her. We'll weep with her when she weeps, but we want to rejoice with her, Lord, and rejoice with the goodness in her, in, um, that you bring to her, Lord. So bring your healing according to your will. We lift up to you Chris Rodriguez, and we pray for her healing there too, for Richard Abbott, who has a, just a very difficult sinus and cold and all these things. And you know how many other people are facing these things, Lord, right now. We lift up to you as well as Chris, the grandson of the Griskies, who has a brain tumor, Lord God. For Kai, uh, the grandson of Rebecca Llewellyn, who also has a brain tumor, we pray for your healing, that you would visit them this day. And that we can all look forward to the day as well of resurrection. Lord God, I lift up to you Darlow, Lafon's son, who, um, who has faced malaria in Haiti, and we pray for your healing there, Lord, that you would work through the medical care he is now receiving to do miraculous things in his life. We thank you, Lord, uh, for so many situations that you are giving us opportunity, even in this day and time where it's so contentious and so difficult. And so we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have through Interfaith Food uh, Bank to provide Thanksgiving meals to at least 30 families. We pray that you'd bless that effort tomorrow and the future. We pray for Operation Christmas Child as well, Lord, that you would just use each one of the boxes that we order or place together ourselves, Lord, that that child who receives it also understands the honor that they have of being yours that they believe and trust in you as their savior, that they are clothed with your righteousness and the gifts that we offer are small compared to the gift uh, that you offer, Lord, this Christmas yourself. Lord God, in the days ahead, we pray for our ministry that we'd be effective in this community and world, that you would do something, uh, though behind the scenes with us, Lord, though small in number in some ways, that you would do miraculous things like you just did with five loaves and two fish. That's all it took to feed 5,000, and that you would use us in ways that go well beyond our capability because your miraculous power is involved. Heavenly Father, we're going to come to you in just a few minutes, those at home online through Zoom uh, for Holy Communion and those here in person. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this gift that, Lord Jesus, you offer to us that night you would be betrayed, that you were betrayed, that you selflessly gave yourself to us that night, that you would fill us with a fullness that you are for us, that you are our all in all, and that we would grow more to be like you, that we would be clothed 
with your character, that we would live for the day of your redemption, of your salvation, of your coming. So bless us, Lord, and prepare our hearts to receive, that we receive with faith all that you have for us. And move us forth after this service, Lord, out to this world in amazing ways to behind the scenes in ways of service and love and truth uh, to proclaim your truth and love to others all week long. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.